a very, very sad day today. It's the last day of the retreat. Do you miss retreats when they end? <laughs> sometimes if you look at what happens on a retreat, it's some of the happiest times of your life. There's many things you can do in this world, but the retreats is when you learn something amazing, wonderful, and it stays with you past your death. And it teaches you how to die, it teaches you how to get old, how to relax and have fun and not worry about anything. That's why just uh, the teachings work on all levels. And I know that a few people got COVID, but just even looking at Christina this morning, she looks really nice and, ha and pretty healthy. So it's nice that I told her, even though she looks healthy and feels healthy, I told her to be sick for one more day, because after that we have to really exploit her and make her work hard. Take advantage of it. And also, uh, PJ was telling me that this morning, actually this morning when I got up, there was lots of smoke around. And I wonder who was smoking cigarettes. <laughs> you know, the, the young Joeys are coming out of the pouch now. And these young people always just misbehave. I reckon it was the Joeys. No? <laughs> Somebody was making toast too early? No? But I did check, and were, the fires are a long way away. You know that sometimes it's what happens when we aren't wise. It's so easy to get fear coming up. And even though I remember one morning getting up and the whole Bodhinyana monastery was blanketed with smoke. I thought, oh my goodness, there must be a bushfire really close by. So we rang up, and then when we found out, the bushfire was down south, somewhere near Albany. It was about 300 kilometers, or oh, 500 kilometers away. But because of the weather conditions, the smoke came up, was blown over, and came down over our monastery. Weird. But you don't need to be afraid. If a bushfire comes close, we have an emergency response. The emergency response is everybody stands in line facing the fire <laughs> and on my command, three, two, one, <laughs> all together. <laughs> so it's a long way away. And I'm not sure if uh, you saw that last night, but coming back from town last night, there was so much lightning. Did you see the lightning last night? It's a really classic strikes. And of course, this time of year, it's a lightning causes the, uh, some bushfires. But we consider that to be like a, a safety burn. Because when they burn some parts of the, uh, the forest now, it means that they won't burn later on when it gets really dangerous. So it's all very, very lucky. Whatever happens, you always put a positive spin on it. Is that good? I hope you see that. If you get sacked from work, you know, you go back and they found other people to do your job, and so, you know, you say, well, you're sacked. Great. You can come straight back to Jarnagrove. 
You're not laughing. Do you want to go back to work? How many of you want to go back to work when you get home? <laughs> One or two. You're honest anyway. So, one of the amazing things about life, which I hope you uh, realize on a retreat like this, the success of life doesn't mean that everything goes your way and you're always lucky. The success in your life when you learn to adapt. And when something goes uh, difficult for you, which you don't like to accept, uh-oh, you got an announcement or something? Okay. Later, yeah. So, if something goes wrong, it's an opportunity to learn how to adapt. You're, how many of you are leaving today, flying off somewhere? Only two of you, three, four, okay. You know, once I was giving some talks over in Indonesia, and they'd arranged, spent weeks arranging it, and the first stop was a talk in, in Jogjakarta. They'd arranged a big hall, and I was going to be giving the talk there. So I went to Perth Airport. I had my flight booked on uh, Garuda Airlines. And when I turned up to check in, there was a big sign. Garuda flight, whatever it was where I was going to fly on, cancelled. Not delayed, but cancelled. It wasn't going to fly at all. And the next flight would be the next day sometime. So I saw many people ahead of me and they were at the Garuda Airlines desk, banging on the desk. You can't do this to me. This I've got appointments. I've got and these businessmen they got really angry and I felt so sorry for the flight, you know, the, the person who do, does the ticket uh, the the check-in. It's not their fault. And they can't just somehow get a Garuda plane to start working again. It was just cancelled. They were very angry. When it came to me, what I did, I just can I just use one of your phones because I don't have mobile phones. And I you know, just called the destination say it's cancelled, I won't be coming today. And they said, why? And thinking on the spot, I said, you are Garuda Airlines. Bird flu. (laughs) (laughs) And it was bird flu crisis. Garuda's a bird. And so even the aircraft can get get bird flu. But it's like bird no fly, not bird flu. (laughs) Oh, thank you for encouraging me. And so the main thing was, you just learn to adapt no matter what happens. And this is a wonderful technique. Those people who were just banging on the desk, they were just getting a sore hand. Not only just a sore hand, but also they were just getting themselves angry. You know, putting up their blood pressure, risking a heart attack, just over a flight which was delayed or cancelled or something. You can always get another one. And that's an interesting thing about if you've ever been on a flight and it's been cancelled. What happens? You get on the next possible flight. Not only that, but you get upgraded a lot of the time. 
Do you like flying business class? Well, just about pray and hope your next flight today or tomorrow is cancelled. <laughs> and it's a good shot. <laughs> you get up waiting. But not only that, that you know, Lent, it's uh, a nice story for a simile. You know that some people, they do suffer when somebody passes away, when they die. And there was this couple, they'll be here tomorrow for the katina. And there's just one of the strong supporters, Thai supporters. Just uh, many years ago, I mean, it's such a long time now, when I first came here, uh, she got pregnant. I had nothing to it, please. <laughs> <laughs> I just... I was just... I was just uh, thinking what I was saying. I didn't want to get, get the wrong idea. I'm a good monk. <laughs> and anyway... <laughs> and anyway... Uh, Unfortunately, she was the lady when she did get pregnant. Just only a you know, pregnancy going to the full term, and when she gave birth, the baby was stillborn. Because what had happened? Just she, uh, the little baby had turned in the womb and cut off the blood supply in the umbilical cord. Stillborn. Now, first of all, would you be sad at that? Would you? Does that help? Does sadness bring the kid back alive? Sadness does, doesn't, but something else does. What they did, I'd heard about this, but the first time I'd seen it, they took a, a biro pen when no one was looking on their little newborn baby laying dead. They drew a line on its heel, just a straight line in a blue pen. And then it was cremated. Later on, she was a healthy woman, so she soon got pregnant again, and then when she gave birth, this time the doctors were really <laughs> careful, giving her ultrasound, I think, every day for the last few days, just to make absolutely sure that it would be safe. And so anyway, gave her birth to a healthy baby, which has a birthmark on its heel. Birthmarks on heels are very, very rare. They're not really natural, unless someone did it before. It was born like that, with a birthmark on there. And so, of course, they realised that was their baby before. Before, his name was Charlie, a male. And this time, it was born as a female. They called it Annie. Didn't I tell you that if somehow you miss a flight, you get bumped off at the last minute, you get an upgrade? <laughs> Sometimes the guys get very upset at me for saying that. And the ladies say, yeah! <laughs> but anyway, because you know, it's people who come to the temple almost every week, you know, you see them, you know, they see little Annie grow up. And it was true, the first you know, few years, you know, once it could walk, it would always love hanging out with the other boys. And girls it just did not like, it would beat them up. <laughs> it would, I'd fight them. It was a tomboy. Was, and even though it had a girl's body, still related to being the boy. Until about six or seven years of age. And then the body you're in kind of takes over and dominates and she became like 
acting female. It was always fascinating to see things like that. To see just, you don't lose the kid, it just gets delayed. There's another couple here, Sri Lankan family. And they had a kid who was six or seven years of age. More than that, maybe about eight or nine, I'm not sure, but still at primary school. And uh, he would cycle to school, not that far, every morning, good for his health. And then apparently while he was cycling to, cycling to school one morning, he felt a bit weird, this kid. And so he stopped by the side of the road, sat down, and just died. And his father was driving to work at the time and felt there was something wrong. And just uh, went on the path with his son to school and found him there. So I was with him for the last few, mo- for a few moments, which was nice. But this little kid had just died suddenly like that. So... Uh, they did like an autopsy on him. How come he looked very healthy? It was like a congenital defect of you know, some of the arteries or something. You know, no one's to blame. Just if you don't check that area, it's so rare that it's not really worth checking. That uh, that's why he died. So we did the funeral, and you know, Ajahn Brahm did the funeral for them, and you know, was just telling them, look, look, if you really want him to come back. Just, you know, just do some chanting or some resolution, aditanas, and see what happens. She soon got pregnant. But when she got pregnant, they gave you know, extra special care for the, the baby in her womb. And that uh, when the baby was born, they gave it a quick test. And this baby had the same medical condition that killed the first kid and was taken straight to the hospital, even though it was just a freshly born baby, and was actually put in the same bed, you know, which it's, uh, the, his elder brother died in about a year before, and the same doctor, and even the doctor said, this is weird. You know, I, I remember treating his, no, said little baby, his elder brother in the same condition. And even the mother now, uh, she, um, she also agrees that's a little kid being reborn. First time, it didn't make it, six or seven years. Next time, uh, born again, st- still a male this time, didn't get the upgrade. <laughs> but because they, they saw the problem straight away, that they fixed it up, and it's fine. Nice, healthy little kid now. So if you go the Bodhinyana Monastery, as you go in the main gate there, on one of the pillars, uh, not the first one, but just a little bit, um, the second one, I think, they put his ashes there and they put a little plaque uh, in his memory. I think they sponsored that electronic gate in memory of their, their first deceased son. They came back again. I love stories like that because they're real, I've seen them, I know they're true. Because if any mother loses a child, you know, I, I can't know the agony which they feel. So all that hope, it's, it's not just even emotional, it's like almost biological. It's, you know, it's really a tragedy. But it's something they can do. When they do that and they found it gets reborn, 
it takes so much of the suffering away. And it also gives them an understanding about what this life actually is and how it works. So it's wonderful when those things happen and you can show it works. So it means your grief is not as much as it kind of should, as it normally is. Have any of you known someone in this life, in early life, and they passed away and they get reborn and you recognize that's them? There's this Buddhist over in Sydney. He was quite a good Buddhist supporter, but no one else in his family were Buddhists. And so his, he had an, an auntie, and his auntie was a very wealthy businesswoman in Sydney. And so when, but his auntie just hated religion. Religions don't do anything, they just take your donations. That was her attitude. And so when she died, and they read out her will, and all the other nephews and nieces and relations got really quite a large amount of money, you know, from her. But not him. She said, you know, you're too Buddhist, you're too religious. You'll probably give all the money away, or at least a lot of it, so I'm not giving any to you. So he's quite disappointed in that. But nevertheless, one thing he did inherit was the little um, you know, crockery and other furnishings and stuff. And of course, you know, he was married and he had kids. And one of the kids born after his auntie died, a little girl, and when she could start speaking, he said he went into the room with a coffee cup. I'm just having a cup of coffee in the morning. Daddy, daddy, that's my cup. Give me my cup. That was the auntie's cup. More than that, when they were driving along the roads, and he told me, Daddy, daddy, that's my house over there. And more interestingly, there's a, a businesswoman in Sydney one of the things she hated more than anything else was paying taxes. She'd do anything to get out of paying the taxes. And that was such a well-known character trait in her. And so when the little daughter was passing this big sign about you know, GST, you know what, called VAT in UK, that's a goods and services tax when you buy something, you have to give so many percent to the government. Or something like that. So she asked, Daddy, what does that GST tax mean? She's only about three years of age. Have you known any kids at three years of age be interested in tax? <laughs> <laughs> and he explained it to her, and she looked at him and said, really serious, Daddy, when you give me any pocket money, I'm not going to pay any tax. <laughs> it just kind of reminded him of his auntie. And of course, it was his auntie reborn. All the other relations came and saw her and said, it just looks, just looks like her. So anyway, those are kind of funny stories, but also interesting stories, because you know, if someone really close to you dies, you haven't got rid of them yet. <laughs> they may come back as a son, a daughter, a niece, or, you know, wherever they can. They kind of congregate in the same family or the same area. So anyhow, 
uh, what I'm going to talk to today. You know, I always do this, don't I? Every time, even the last talk, you know, I have some idea what I'm going to talk about and then talk about something completely different. But anyway, I think you enjoyed it, I hope. But anyhow, that it's all... Don't have to look at the time, it's another 40 minutes yet. Be in the present moment. <laughs> so, when... This, this is a good example of being in the present moment. You know, these retreats which we have here, they're nice and soft and comfortable, I hope, for you. But there's this one friend of mine. He was uh, a New Zealand, a Kiwi. And uh, he, I think we both ordained around the same time. But he decided to ordain in, the, in a Korean Buddhist order. A very strict one. Not just using the stick, but they would have a retreat every year, 60 days. Not nine days, not eight days. 60 days. Would you like to have a 60-day retreat? 60 days of peace and bliss. Unfortunately, it wasn't like that. <laughs> you had your place in the meditation hall where you could you sit, a little cushion. And you'd start in the morning, maybe four o'clock, you'd sit for 45 minutes, then you'd get up when the gong went, and you all had to walk like in a procession around the hall, and then afterwards, after 15 minutes, gong went, sit back down again. 45 minute sit meditation, 15 minute walk meditation. 45 minutes sit, 15 minute walk. And then there came the time for, I think, the first breakfast. You didn't go to the hall for breakfast, you sat down where you were, and this place of food were brought to your, your seat. You had to eat it there. And then after 15 minutes was taken away, more sitting meditation, another 15 minutes walk, 45 minutes sit, 15 minute walk, until the bell went and that was lunch. And at lunchtime, you carried on sitting there, the delay of food was brought to you to eat right there. And then 45 minute meditation, 15 minutes sit. If you wanted to go to the toilet, you can actually put your hand up, get permission, but it only be for five minutes, you had to come and sit down again. 45 minutes sit, 15 minute walk, 45, all during the day. And if you wanted to go and see the master for an interview, he told me the master was very, 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 very different to me. I'm always kind to you. How are you? Are you sure that the meditation's okay? This fellow was really mean and, and, and aggressive and, and, and even violent sometimes. If he said, well, I've been very sleepy in meditation, out comes the Zen sick whack. Zen stick, not the Zen sick. The, zen, the sick comes afterwards. <laughs> But anyhow, it was, so most of the time people didn't want to ask any questions. You know, that's kind of a good idea if I want to have less interviews. <laughs> I should be more fierce. I know there's places you can go to, like charm school. I want to have the opposite. Do they have in Singapore, like, fierceness school? They do. I'm too old for the military. <laughs> Anyhow, so, 
Uh, that was really unpleasant. There's no jokes in any talks. There's no, I'm saying this carefully, no kindness in any of the interviews. And it was just sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, all during the day. When it came to the evening time, I think they finished about nine. So nine o'clock, the day was over. Did they have a bed to go to? No, they just had another mat and they, sat exact, they slept exactly where they were sitting, all in the same room. And he said, those uh, monks who were older than him, who were really just, you know, had lots of experience, they never even slept. They went out into the garden and meditated in there. You'd like to go in the garden at night time. That really, really made him upset. Just doing one day of meditation, that was hard enough. And all these smart addicts who go and sit outside and they don't sleep, that was really sort of making him feel very, very grumpy. But anyway, he lay down and slept. But when you're really exhausted and tired like that, as soon as your head hit the pillow, then gong, you wake up again because it's four o'clock in the morning. Time goes so quickly when you sleep like that. And another day, 45 minutes sit, 50 minute walk, 45 minutes sit. And by this time, after the first few days, his back was really like being tortured. His butt and his knees were exploding in pain. He was usually a very fit young man. But because of repetitive strain injury, of sitting and walking and walking and sitting, he really sort of started to get very sore. And it was only the first week. And he looked at all the other monks who were sitting there, all these other Korean monks. He was the only Westerner. And he kind of thought, Kiwi pride. I'm not going to give in while all these <laughs> Koreans can manage it, so I'm going to just bear with it. And he managed the first week. It wasn't any bliss. It was just pain. But he kept with it. And day after day, it was very hard to endure. But eventually, he got to the end of the first month, the halfway point. Have you ever noticed that, that for some reason or another, we can bear with it until it gets to the halfway mark? And then we think, I've got halfway, so I'm sure I can endure for the next... Uh, next uh, four weeks. But the second four weeks are always much longer than the first four weeks. They still have the same seven days and 24 hours a day. But emotionally, it's much, much longer. So it got eventually to five weeks. That's, that last week, the fifth week, was like sort of a whole month. Six weeks. And all the time he thought, if I give in now, and he really felt like giving in, that's like being unfaithful for all the endurance he'd done so far. Got to the seventh week, only one more week to go. And that last week was really long and really painful. Be careful, if you don't know how to be in the present moment, you start thinking, well, only one week to go. That week becomes really long. And anyway, it came to the last day. 
like this is the last day of this retreat. And when he woke up, he was still really tired and sore and aching. It's only just a few hours to go. He said, I can surely manage this. But those hours were like stretched out. They almost looked like infinity to him. Sometimes when he was meditating, <laughs> sitting, he just opened his eyes to peek at the clock. It can't be that slow. The 45 minutes must be up now. It was only four minutes. That's what happens when you start expecting and really wanting time to go quickly. And when it came to the last meditation, last meditation of the whole retreat, they always used to have this uh, tradition at the end of the retreat. You know, in Korea, it were like hot baths. And it was just looking so forward to the hot bath. Imagine that at the end of the retreat you can lay in a hot bath and allow that beautiful warm water to soak away all that tightness and pain and aches in your body. Oh, bring on the hot bath, he was thinking. And also they would have a feast as well. It's the Korean tradition, Mahayana. And he was looking forward to it. Instead of sitting down there and eating whatever was put in front of him, he could actually choose and eat whatever he liked, as much as he wanted, as fast or as slow as he wanted. That was like a reward, you know, for all the hard work of that retreat. So he was thinking, oh, I'm going to eat this first, now I'm going to eat that, and then I'm going to eat something else. He started planning it all out. And then he opened his eyes. Again, only two minutes had gone past. And that's when he started, he told me, he started kind of fantasizing. What if it happens? I mean, it can happen. It's bad luck, but it can happen. What if in that last 45 minutes, the battery of the clock fades? What if the clock stops and gets stuck? And he has to meditate the last meditation for two hours. Those are all the stupid thoughts you have. So that last meditation session of 45 minutes, it lasted forever. You know, sometimes that happened when I was a young monk. You know, that you have to wait till Ajahn Chah to ring the bell before you could actually leave. So you know what I thought? I thought, as a kid, as a boy in London, we had these pea shooters, little tubes, and you put a, like a little hard thing in the middle of it, on the end of it, and I thought, I can easily make a little pea shooter. There's plenty of little stones in the forest. And I would just practice, first of all. You have to practice and make sure you're accurate. <laughs> and then, when the meditation, I'm getting really sore, and I want Ajahn Chah to stop and ring the bell. He doesn't ring the bell, I just get my pea shooter out. <laughs> Ding! <laughs> That's what I thought. I never had the guts or the nerve to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, that's what I was fantasizing. And anyway, eventually, it has to happen. The last meditation was finished. And the, the teacher, the meditation retreat is now over. He felt just so much sense of accomplishment. 60 days of meditation. Even though he wasn't enlightened, 
he had lots of insurance. And after, he said, bring on the hot bath. Bring on the food. And then the head monk rang the gong again. Um, excuse me, but before you leave, during the interviews, two or three of you monks have told me how valuable this retreat has been and how much you progressed on the path. And you've requested, can we extend the retreat for another week? <laughs> I think that's a good idea. No bars, no feast, sit. The retreat's extending for another week. Imagine that was you as that Kiwi monk. Oh, he said, never in his life that he felt so much ill will. <laughs> but he said his mind didn't wonder, his mind was focused on trying to work out who those two or three blooming monks were who made that stupid suggestion and what he was going to do to them when he found out. <laughs> he was really angry. One thing he noticed. I think they carried on meditating for another 20 minutes before the bell went. And those 20 minutes passed so fast, like one minute. When he rang the bell again, and the head monk said, retreat over, hot bars, feast down there, off you go. And this Kiwi, he was, what? Is this retreat finished or is it carrying on? And he was really confused. And that's when one of the other monks who could speak some English, who'd been there a while, said, the retreat's over. The master does this every time. <laughs> so, many of you in your interviews have been telling me how wonderful it is. It's now extended for another seven days. <laughs> But that was a wonderful teaching, just about you know, how we uh, sometimes plan and how those expectations, the planning causes a lot of suffering and the expectations, once they don't go as we thought they would go or should go, that's where so much suffering comes from. Whatever happens, oh, I can make something out of this. Whatever happens, you can do something. But if you plan, it must be this way, it must be that way. That's where suffering comes from. So anyhow, that was like a retreat story, which I will always remember. So sometimes you think, and sometimes, I'm not quite sure, you, even during this retreat, sometimes a bit sort of uh, concerned, what day is it? Because the days are just almost the same. You get up in the morning, we do some meditation, you do the morning chanting, more meditation, then you go and have breakfast, it's pretty much the same every morning, and then you listen to a talk with the jokes, the same jokes every morning. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have a rest, and then you meditate in the afternoon, interviews. Do you really remember what the days are? Every day is the same. If it's in Singapore, you know, you know when Sunday is, you know when it's a holiday, you know when payday is. What day is payday in Singapore? 
I mean, some usually some companies don't pay you at all. <laughs> Anyhow, so because the days are pretty much the same, sometimes we forget. Is it Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday? I know that happened to me the first few days here, you know, just on this retreat even. I was a bit tired from all the work I was doing before, you know, teaching the monks, and then come up and did the talk, give this talk. Is it Tuesday today or Wednesday? So I remember having to ask somebody, and what day is it today? That gets me really worried. I was often like that in Thailand. Because who needs to know what day of the week it is? It's not like we don't have a payday as monks. So because of that, that I was a bit concerned. When I first came to Perth, in our city centre, the first city centre, which was in North Perth, there was a Nepalese gentleman, a very good Buddhist, but he's suffering from epileptic, epileptic fits. So he had an epileptic fit while I was right with him. So you know, we made sure he wasn't going to swallow his tongue or uh, injure himself. But we decided we should call the ambulance. So we called the ambulance and because we were in North Perth, very close to things, the ambulance came very quickly. And they looked at him and they said, he's had an epileptic fit. And so he'd come like conscious now. The first thing they asked him, what day of the week is it? He didn't know, he just had an epileptic fit. So they put him in the ambulance and took him up to get checked out and to like recover. And then afterwards I asked the ambulance medics, why did you ask him what day of the week it is? And they said, because that's standard procedure. If they don't know what day of the week it is, it must be they're you know, very sick. And so we'll always take them into hospital. And afterwards, that gave me a bit of scare. <laughs> and I told the person I was with at the time, if they'd have asked me what day of the week it is, I'd be in the back of the ambulance too. Because <laughs> you, know, you live a life which days of the week don't really matter. That's why they're not important to you. And that's why on a retreat sometimes it's wonderful. Isn't it? You know when, say, Sunday is because the shops are closed, or you know when Monday is because you know, it's the day you go to work and organize things. But you know, those are just constructs of culture, they're no real meaning. So when you go to a monastery, you get into like a beautiful timeless zone. Time doesn't have the same meaning. And even there is a story which I haven't said yet in this retreat, which is a useful story. And, and it qualifies as an original Ajahn Brahm joke, which I invented. I take full blame for. <laughs> and that is how many of you, when you're meditating, you meditate and meditate and meditate and meditate, you don't get anywhere. And you carry on meditating, 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 being kind, being generous, keeping precepts, you don't get anywhere. You study Pali, you join Buddhist societies again and again and again, and you don't get anywhere. And this story was the story of the migrant. 
how do rich countries treat poor migrants? There are people who come as refugees, they, they flee from uh, disaster or from conflict, and when they come to the country, sometimes they don't know where they're coming to, just any place which is safe. And I've noticed a few times, when the first Cambodians came into Perth, because they were nominally Buddhist, they invited other people who were looking after them, uh, the, in the council, they had these little um, flats for them. Over, it was in Shenton Park. And they called us up saying, you're Buddhist monks here, can you come and look after these Khmer people? You know, these uh, refugees from the, from the killing fields. And of course, you know, you had some idea of what they'd been through. And of course, you would drop everything to try and help. But I remember going there, they had a little auditorium. And all these refugees, you know, they didn't know what country they were in. You know, because they'd only known the villages of Cambodia. They never did much geography. Now they're in Australia and just totally lost. You can see that confusion of a person who's had to flee their home and everything which they were culturally accustomed to. But I remember Ajahn Jacaro started by trying to give a talk. But of course they couldn't understand English. And so we stopped and I suggested, let's do some Buddhist chanting. And that's what we did. And I will never forget that moment. Because that chanting we do, it's in Pali. It's the same chanting you do in Burma. Maybe slightly different pronunciation, but it's recognizable. You know, in Laos, in Thailand. It's a common Buddhist chanting, Sri Lanka. So when we started doing the chanting, you could see all these refugees looking at us in utter surprise. And then they put their hands up in Anjali. And then they started weeping, crying their eyes out. They come to Australia and now there's something, one little thing they could recognize. And that made all the difference. There were some people who could have some understanding, connection of where they came from. And they became you know, close supporters you know, throughout their whole life. And they'd always come to monastery. On Katina Day, on Sunday, there'd be quite a few of them come here, even though they have their own temple, but still, they still have that uh, gratitude for welcoming, welcoming them into Australia. But there's also this other man, he was a monk, he eventually left being a monk, but when he came to Australia, he got a job working in the, the customs and immigration in Brisbane. And so when Laotian refugees started coming in from the refugee camps, displaced, again, mostly villagers, displaced by the, the war in uh, Laos, when they came in, they didn't know where they were supposed to go. They had a kind of refugee passport, but it was the first time they had any document by that, like that. Laotians weren't tourists. They never went to see the sites in, in uh, New York or in San Francisco. They'd hardly traveled at all. And now they landed in Brisbane Airport. They didn't know where to go. They said, just go and show your papers to any of the gentlemen on the counters. 
and this man Rod. He was one of the um, one of the uh, customs and immigration officials on one of the counters. And this first totally lost and confused refugee, Laotian refugee, he addressed him, Matasai. That's like saying hello. It means like, where are you from? Matasai, Penjang Dai, how are you? And this refugee burst out crying. Someone could speak his language. And so he started speaking Laotian to the, um, the ex-monk, and the ex-monk carried on speaking Laotian back to the refugee. And all these refugees, maybe about 60 or 70 of them, they all came to the same counter. <laughs> they were not going to go to any other customs official, <laughs> except for the guy who could speak their language and was welcoming him. It's just a beautiful part of, you can imagine if you were sort of a person like that, fleeing your home, someone can actually welcome you. <laughs> it's beautiful. Those are kind of acts of kindness I will never forget. Anyway, where did I start from? I know it was, I start from one story and I do another little story, which is connected. <laughs> but I've got, to, I've got to rewind that to go back to where I started. Um, yeah, I started, oh yes, right, with having to know the day. Oh yeah, having to know the day and also the story of the migrant. So this migrant, really smart guy, he migrated into Australia with his family. And this is actually relevant to the meditation. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> so he was a doctor in his home country. You know what it's like in Australia? They don't recognize your qualifications. Even psychiatry, the College of Psychiatry, that's what they called it, in Australia. There was this fellow invited by one of the big universities. He was a top psychiatrist in the US. They're very well known. And he was invited to one of the colleges, I think, in New South Wales, you know, for one year, you know, to actually to assist and help and improve the teaching of psychiatry, you know, in Australia. When he came through the customs, I'm sorry, sir, but you may be qualified in the United States, but you're not qualified here. They wouldn't accept his credentials. And the union said, but don't worry, it's only a simple test you have to do. Here's two books you have to study. We'll give you a test on them, and if you pass, then you can uh, be a psychiatrist in Australia. And they gave him the two books, and the first book they gave him, he looked at it. Whose name is on this? Who wrote this book? That's my name! <laughs> I wrote this book! <laughs> they said, well, we also make it easy, but you have to study it, and you have to do a test on it. And this psychiatrist had to do a test on a book which he wrote. <laughs> it's crazy, unions. That's why, as I said to you, that you know, if I went to the United States, I would never be allowed to teach meditation. I'm not accredited. They'll probably give me a book like Happiness Through Meditation. <laughs> so study that. 
But anyway, with the, <laughs> the migrants. So he couldn't work as a doctor. So, you know, what do people do in those days? They work as a builder on a building site. So he worked a little. He was you know, fit and healthy, and there was nice exercise. He was smart. So he was working on a building site. And when he came home on Monday, his wife asked him, how much did you earn today? And he said, nothing. I worked really hard. At the end of the day, I just came home. They didn't give me any pay. I'll go again on Tuesday. She so went on Tuesday, same thing happened. Worked really hard, didn't get paid. Wednesday, the same. And by Thursday, it was getting very negative. These people in Australia just exploit us as refugees. They say they respect us, but they don't. So he went to work on Thursday and worked really hard, still didn't get anything. He wasn't going to go to work on Friday, but his wife said, well, you've got nothing else to do, you might as well go there. So he went to work on Friday on the building site. He never worked hard at all. Even in the mid-morning, the boss called him in and gave him a big pay packet. When he went home, at last I found out how it works in Australia. From now on, I'm only going to work on Fridays. <laughs> on payday. That's like the connection with meditation. Sometimes you get a really nice meditation. You get payday. All the hard work you've done, so many days, the same thing, but now it kind of works, it gels and you get this beautiful peace, maybe even limiters and stuff. And now you think, ah, I can meditate now. So you do exactly the same again and it's hopeless. You can't have every day to be payday as a meditator. Every time you meditate and you think this was hopeless, it's not working, I've got to see Ajahn Brahm, I've got to complain, I've got to ask for my money back. Every time you feel like that, remember, it's like the builder working hard on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. You're building up credit. And when you get the, pay, the paycheck, it's because of all those meditation days you were sitting here thinking you're getting nowhere. You're making credit. And when that credit builds up and builds and builds and builds, that's when you get your paycheck. And sometimes that paycheck is not delivered on the last day of the retreat. So anyone who says, I've been working, meditating really long and very hard, I've got nothing yet, don't worry. The check's in the mail. <laughs> Whatever it is. And it does work. Sometimes you meditate and meditate and meditate and meditate and meditate and you get nowhere. Carry on. One thing I would say that if you meditate, at the end of the meditation, ask yourself, how do you feel? And even the so-called bad meditations, you still feel much better than if you didn't meditate at all. And that's why one of these meditation teachers told me, there is no such thing as a bad meditation. If you're meditating, it's still good, even though you may think it's not. You're learning. You're at least aiming in that direction. You're inclining in that direction. You are literally building up the credit. And once the meditation starts to work, you realize what I'm talking about is true. 
you didn't do all those other types of meditation, all those other meditation which didn't work, you wouldn't get the paycheck. When it comes, you don't know when it's coming. That's also the lovely thing. When I get, got my first really nice meditation, I couldn't believe it. So why me? I'm not doing much more than anybody else. It is you know, some of the other meditations you've been doing. All that time I never got anywhere. But it did get somewhere. You understand why. And as I said with a thousand petal lotus, it's not that you are unable. It's not that you can't do it. It's not that these jhanas are just too far removed from you. That thousand petal lotus simile has so many advantages to it. One is that you know that those deep meditations are right inside of you right now. Now the heart of the lotus, you just need to learn how to be patient enough to allow those lotus petals to open naturally. So you don't think, this is the last day of the retreat, oh my goodness, I haven't got anything yet. So you see that some lotus flower, and you start pulling them apart. <laughs> I've only got a day to go. <laughs> pull, pull, you destroy the lotus. That's no way to open it. And someone said to me, maybe you know, add the word contentment or patience you know, to those two qualities of uh, mindfulness and kindness. I say that's part of kindness, the contentment, patience. You know there's two types of patience? The first type of patience is waiting for something to happen. That's not patience at all. That's looking into the future. That's like that Kiwi monk in the 60-day retreat, waiting for the bell to go to end the retreat. That's suffering. What patience really means is being here in this moment, being kind to it. You know, just like a doctor treating a patient, or like a waiter treating the customer. You look there, and you don't say, you've been on that first course long enough, sir, here's the second course. Someone actually did that to me once. Interestingly enough, I'll share the story with you. Another sort of story, totally nothing to do with meditation. <laughs> Once I received this invitation, this really neat invitation, to a state dinner with Queen Elizabeth in Canberra. Wow. I was busy that day. I don't usually do this. I cancelled the previous appointment. <laughs> and I talked with the monks about it. I said, yes, you must go. But it did say, Ajahn Brahm and partner. <laughs> they always say that. So I couldn't take any other monk from Perth. So I called up Ajahn Sujato. You know, he was in Sydney and he didn't mind going to Canberra. It's not that far. So he was my partner. <laughs> <laughs> And anyhow, I remember him saying that he had a, do- a dentist appointment. And he rang up his dentist and said, can I have the dentist appointment today? And he said, no, we can't change appointments like that. And Ajahn Sajjata said, it's important. Why? 
I'm meeting the Queen Elizabeth tomorrow. Fair enough, you come to my surgery now. <laughs> That's a good, good excuse. But anyway, um, these, when you go to these big state dinners, they really do their research. I was really impressed. They found out, what can a monk eat in the evening? They know that everyone else was having macadamia nuts and this curry or that sort of lamb chop and potatoes or whatever. But they asked, what does a monk eat? And someone was really smart. They said, we can eat cheese, we can eat chocolate, as long as it's dark chocolate. So the first course for me was this amazing, delicious brand of cheese. I forget what it was, a local brand of cheese. That was really high-quality cheese. I mean, it was like Queen Elizabeth's dinner. You'd expect it to be just not just little stuff which you peel out of a plastic bag. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was eating. That was really delicious. But then the the waiters came, and they just... Because I was talking so much, I I do things slowly, and I was always waste time. So anyway, (laughs) they... They grabbed the cheese away and they gave me another type of cheese. The second course. I forget what the, the, um, the brands were, but you know, really nice Aussie cheese. And so I was eating a couple of pieces of that. This time it was quicker because I knew they could come at any time. That's <laughs> <laughs> nice in a way. But the last course, I was really impressed. It was you know, dark chocolate. But not just you know, little cubes of chocolate. Whoever did this, oh, I wish I had a camera and take a photograph of it, because it was actually like a sculpture. It's a work of art. They'd taken this brown chocolate and made this, um, I can't know what you call it, but it, just, uh, it looked really like it should belong in a museum, not in my tummy. <laughs> so I just couldn't eat that because it looked too beautiful. I didn't need to anyway. And so, uh, that was also the time when the invitation came. You know, get this nice invitation. So it was you know, from the Prime Minister, John Howard, at the time. And I didn't like him, but I thought, who cares? <laughs> for the state dinner. There's a problem. Not just for the food. The main problem was dress code. These high fancy dinners, you have to have a dress code. So I looked at the invitation. <laughs> they had three choices. The first choice was black tie. Now look, I don't go to these state dinners. Sometimes the Buddhist fellowship invite me to these big dinners with the president of Sri Lanka. But you know, they know what Buddhist monks are there. They didn't know what Buddhist monks were in Canberra. So the first choice was a black tie. What does a black tie mean? Is that all you wear? (laughs) Is it (laughs) some weird, perverted... (laughs) And apparently, like, black tie is code. It's code for black tie, a dinner shirt, tuxedo, trousers and shoes and everything. We didn't have any of those things in monastery. We're monks. So I started thinking, I can't go. 
second choice. <laughs> second choice was military uniform. I'm a pacifist. I'm not going to go dressed as some colonel or major. So I thought, definitely, I'm not going to be able to go. And I saw the third choice, and I smiled. I can go. The third choice was long dress. <laughs> it's true, I'm not making it up. It looks like a long dress, that's fair enough. <laughs> when I went there, I got stopped by security, of course. Are you meant to be here? Said the security, and I got the invitation. Yes, I'm supposed to be here. So she let me in. <laughs> There's a nice, interesting things you get to do as a monk in Australia. But anyhow, where was this coming from? Oh yeah, the, the paycheck. Sometimes you don't know when the paycheck's going to come. In Buddhism, that was my simile about the paycheck and the migrant. In Buddhism, they say it's like filling a water jar, which is taller than, taller than your head. So you can't see how much water is in there and how much water still needs to be put in. All you can ever see is another drop of water is entering that jar and no water is going out. So you know it's only a matter of time. Only a matter of time before the water jar becomes full. You don't know when. And then the water starts to drip over. I know that many people, they're always very challenging. I encourage that. And they start saying, but, 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 but. You can always bang the jar to see if you can find out how much water is in there. Or get a mirror and put it on the top. Trying to figure out all sorts of ways you know, to beat the system and find out how much more meditation you need to do. But as simply as it is, it's the best. It's always worthwhile just doing a little bit more meditation. Filling the jar a little bit more. And soon it just, surprisingly, one day, it has to, it starts dripping over. Beautiful nimittas, incredible jhanas, amazing insights. That's just the path. That's how it works. Okay. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. That's a little bit about meditation. But anyway, we're having a break now. And after the break, we do a loving kindness guided meditation. So, 15 minutes break.